to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-up. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. I'm your host, Greg Stetz. Today, we will be talking about the Belt and Road Initiative in African continent and China's engagement with African countries. With me is Hannah Ryder, a former British and Kenyan diplomat and a former head of policy and partnerships for the United Nations Development Program in China. Now, Hannah runs Development Reimagined, a consultancy company focused on making development programs effective. Hannah, it is great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Please tell us a bit about your background and connection to China and the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm a Kenyan and I always had an interest in what China was doing. I began my career as an international uh, civil servant working in the UK government and Throughout my work, whether I was working on climate change, agriculture, uh, also on uh, international development programs, China would always feature somehow. But I wanted to really understand it, and that's why I decided to come to China to work for the United Nations Development Program. I did a two-year contract with them, helping them to scale up their work with China and the rest of the world, China's South-South Corporation, as it's known. And during those two years, I realized that Although the UN is doing a lot here in China and uh, continues to do a lot, there is still lots of gaps. And those gaps are uh, especially with regards to African countries and their engagement with China. So I decided to open an international development uh, consultancy, not just to meet that gap, but particularly to meet that gap, but also to provide uh, support also to Chinese organizations who are looking to do development better. This year's Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit in Beijing has taken over headlines around the world. How did it compare to the previous forums? What does it tell us about the future of China-African cooperation? Well, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, you might be aware, started in the year 2000. It's not the first type of summit or organization which is linked to Africa. There's many others. There's the French Africa Summit, the Japan Africa Summit. Uh, those started even before China did. But the Forum on China Africa Corporation has really been one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent, and has attracted lots and lots of leaders over the 18 years that it's been around. And it meets every three years. This year was held in Beijing. Last time that it was held was in 2015 in Johannesburg in South Africa. And this year was different in three respects. First of all, one could detect a lot more African agency. Challenge with the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation so far has been just how 
China-driven it is. The announcements often come from China, and although Africans do try and there are some coordination mechanisms, the having a joint and clear position on what they really want from the China relationship is not easy. Now, with things like the African Union reform and so on, this is definitely improving. And so uh, we saw a bigger focus from the African side, for example, on an issue like trade. Over 40 of the African countries have trade deficits with China right now. And so there was a clear positioning, let's try and address this challenge through Forum on China-Africa Corporation. So it was really the first time that we really saw this. The second was that we saw a lot more business engagement from Africans here in China. Uh, so there was a lot of African businesses were invited to come here uh, for, the, for the summit. And that was, a, that was, again, quite a big difference in comparison even to Johannesburg, where there, were, there was a business summit in parallel with the government-to-government meeting. But that, uh, that meeting was really engaging a lot of Chinese businesses, not necessarily African businesses. So it was great to see a lot more African private sector uh, representatives come to Beijing. And the third way that it was different was there was actually a lot more caution from China this year. In my opinion, that's a bit unfortunate, but I think it comes from the... uh, There's been a lot of international focus on is China providing too much debt and getting Africans in debt and this sort of thing. And a lot of the media coverage around Belt and Road Road Initiative has also been really emphasising the failed projects and so on. And, And yes, there are some difficult projects. African countries haven't necessarily got everything that they want, but at the same time, they need a lot of finance from China. They need a lot of finance from everybody, to be honest. So this was also an interesting development, but I hope that it won't mean that ambition with regard to China-Africa engagement is reduced. It's quite often when we read about China's engagement with Africa, the the whole continent is treated as a single actor and that the engagement is branded as simple resources for infrastructure exchange. Who really are the major partners of Africa and China on the Belt and Road projects? And what are particularly interesting projects that we have seen so far? Mm. Well, first of all, we have to be aware that not all African countries are are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So before the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, there were 12 African countries that had signed up directly. They'd got memorandums of understanding with the Chinese government on the Belt and Road Initiative. Now 37 African countries have memorandums of understanding with the Chinese government. Many of those were signed during the FOCAC meetings, the bilateral meetings that took place. And in the FOCAC declaration itself... Uh, just recently, there was uh, overall welcoming of the Belt and Road Initiative. So that's one point. The second is that not all of the projects that happen with African countries, and in fact, the minority of them are resources for infrastructure. That was the previous model, and there was a particular model we, uh, those of us in the kind of China-Africa community, call it the Angola model, which was a uh, which was used by Angola in particular. But it is it is a particular model of um, of saying, look, we will Chinese companies will come and build 
piece of infrastructure and in, and in return there'll be a resource flow. But most African countries actually don't have that kind of degree of natural resources to be able to make those kinds of deals. So for those ones that don't, they can take out their own loans. Um, they can uh, take out loans with China in partnership with China. They can also take out loans in partnership with others. And there are also increasingly numbers of different projects which are not just loans which involve Chinese companies building uh, infrastructure. Now we are seeing more and more projects which are driven by Chinese companies being interested in investing in African countries. That is what African countries are now looking for from the Belt and Road Initiative. They're looking for not just the state-owned enterprises, your CRBC, China Road and Bridge Corporation, the CCCC, you know, CECC, you know, so many of these, all these acronyms all basically mean state-owned enterprise uh, for any of you that don't really, uh, that don't know so much about them. But increasingly, we're seeing private sector companies working with government-funded organizations like the China-Africa Development Fund to enter the African market. And that is a really interesting uh, and important development. And my hope is that there'll be even more of that going forwards, especially into industrialization, which is a major priority for African countries. And they're looking for sustainable green industrialization. Would you be able to give us uh, an example of one or two projects that have been completed, that are working, that are success stories in the end? Well, I think the biggest success story on the African continent for uh, interest for these sorts of projects is really, I think, Ethiopia. And if you if you speak to any Chinese investors or Chinese companies, that's probably the one African country they'll be able to talk to you about as a potential investment destination, which says a lot. So Ethiopia's really had a very clear strategy for its engagement with China, uh, a strategy which is both about building infrastructure uh, and also about getting investment from China into its industrial zones. So China, so Ethiopia had this idea for special economic zones, building actually, it's an, it's an African idea, special economic zones back in 1971, the first one in Liberia. But when China brought in special economic zones in China, they've really been very, very successful. So now everyone's looking to China for, for the support on those zones. But Ethiopia has created a number of these zones and has had different types of Chinese companies come in, especially textiles and garments companies. Uh, one of my good friends, Helen High, from the Made in Africa initiative, uh, she was the CEO of a, of a particularly uh, famous factory, Huajian Shoes, and has really used that as an example to promote to other Chinese companies, look, here is, here is a great opportunity to move to, to, to move to this country. But I think what the Ethiopia example shows is, is the potential for success. And you know, Ethiopia is attracting a lot of investment you know, over, over a billion over the uh, last year and a half, over a billion US dollars over the last six months. But at the same time, there are also, it also shows what the challenge is, which is that Chinese companies really don't know much about the African markets. And it takes a lot to provide that kind of information to them, a great deal of investment, and also 
the success stories. So you do need a kind of anchor investor to go in, somebody who's really willing to take that risk in 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 a particular setting. Huajian Shoes was one of those in Ethiopia, and basically other African countries wanting to follow that model also need something like that. The second challenge is that some of the financing instruments that some of the private Chinese private sector companies are going to, they're okay, but they also don't necessarily fit the African situation. Some of the financial instruments like the China Africa Development Fund are trying to fund really large projects, really large investments, you know, over 10 million, over 20 million US dollars. Those types of projects right now in Africa, there's not so many of those that, that are that viable, whereas there's a lot at the $5 million level and this sort of thing. So there are new partnerships which are being talked about Exim Bank has just put in some money into uh, one of the African uh, African development banks, which will look at more at financing for the small and medium enterprise sector, take on that kind of risk with Chinese financing. So this is this is another welcome development, but again, it, it illustrates the risk. And finally, the last challenge is really this idea about having a full strategy. So a lot of African countries so far have really just had Chinese investors, if they want to come in, they come in, you know, there's a project, they'll tender for a project, the Chinese companies will bid for it at a very low price, they'll win, wonderful. Or the Chinese companies will will also find ways to meet the top levels of government, say we've got this great project idea, the top levels of government say, yeah, that sounds wonderful, and then it goes ahead. That has been a kind of modus operandi. But there are a number of imbalances that have come out through that relationship as a result. So lack of thinking about Chinese workers, for example, the use of local inputs into infrastructure development, trying to manage the imports and export levels, even trying to enter China, you know, have African products come into China. This is something that a lot of governments have not really kind of fully grasped. And that creates challenges too. And it also creates a space for a lot of support that is needed going forwards. So these are the challenges that we that we see. You run development reimagined company and have worked on multiple development projects at UN. How does working on development projects with Chinese partners compare to working with American or European partners? Right, so I have I have the most experience working with uh, with European and Chinese partners, less so on the US side, uh, because I've never worked for USAID, for example. But nevertheless, you know, they they were an important partner when I was in the Department for International Development in the UK, and when when working on development effectiveness together. So let me start with the similarities, right? And I think one of the biggest similarities between working with all development partners is one major challenge for African countries and other low-income countries, which is that many of them rely on themselves. What I mean by that is in development, we have this concept of country ownership. It's supposedly a principle which is meant to run through all types of development projects, which is that the people who you're trying to serve you need to make sure that they are the ones who are saying this is what we want this is how we want it and help us in the way that we have that we've designed not how you've designed it in reality in development the majority of development partners find that very difficult to deliver and and china is very similar 
in lots of ways to other development partners in this way. It's a challenge for working with Chinese partners because a lot of the time you do have to work with, you've got to work with Chinese partners that have never necessarily worked with African counterparts or don't really have a full knowledge and they can only work with you on a kind of uh, hands-off basis. You can never necessarily integrate into the organisations. You're never fully part of the staff. And that is also a challenge with, is also a challenge with European and, and American projects too. So there's a similarity. The differences, though, are more stark. With regards to Chinese partners, what you find with the types of aid projects and development projects, Chinese partners will come up with concepts which are based on their actual experience. So what they have gone through in this country, special economic zones being one, right? So the idea of promoting industrialization is not just an idea, it's actually something concrete which is based in as a positive success within China. The same with agricultural demonstration centers used, you know, medical teams, all of these things are things which are done in China. So that's in a way, that's helpful because it, it, it kind of frames it in something really concrete. You find sometimes with, uh, whether it's USAID, DFID, uh, NORAD, some of the projects can be activities which have never necessarily happened in their own countries. And that can be a problem. The second difference is that Chinese projects are very input oriented. And this is a challenge. And this is a problem. The reason I say it's a problem is take one example. Um, when I was working with UNDP here in China, actually UNDP was a really useful partner to China because the Chinese stakeholders we were involved with had been working with Cambodia for many years in terms of on Cambodia's agricultural sector and really not made a great deal of progress. And they really wanted to say, say look, how can we actually do a project which which will have a bigger transformational impact. And how can we measure that impact? How can we make sure that the poorest people also get the benefits of this project? So they, they turned to the UN, which is the right thing to do. With the Cambodia project, what we were able to do was to design an intervention, an aid project, which was linked to other parts of what's happening in Cambodia. So it was the project itself was fundamentally about uh, cassava production and trying to help Cambodian farmers have a better income from farming cassava rather than farming rice because rice is a, can be a difficult product. Cassava could give them more income. But what we also did with that project is we linked them to some businesses in China who would need the, the cassava for processing and we brought those businesses over to Cambodia. Those, those businesses themselves thought, well, we could actually do the processing here in Cambodia and then transport them. So we built something which was more sustainable, still targeting the poorest people. And that was very different from typical Chinese projects, aid projects that you've seen before. So my hope is that working on development, by sharing this sort of experience, and this is what we try to do in all our work, is is that we can encourage the Chinese partners and all others to really do more to allow the local voice to be heard, to localize, provide country ownership, using the very technical terms, but also help others to build on good models and work with others to improve its own ways of working. 
So China is often accused of neocolonialism in Africa. But is it really the case that the African countries are passive and powerless actors in this relationship? And for instance, just a few days ago, the new government of Sierra Leone cancelled a 400 million US dollars deal with China. What power dynamics do you see between Chinese and Africans? So my strong feeling is that African countries are not powerless. They actually have a great deal of potential bargaining power with China and the rest of the world too. You know, this is a continent that is fast growing, that has a large youth population who can be, you know, fairly cheap labor, but also really innovative. You know, we've got a lot happening. At the same time, it is really up to the African continent, African leaders to be much more strategic about what engagement they want, what kind of relationship they want with China. And I think part of the problem so far and the interpretation of neocolonialism, which I strongly disagree with as well, because it, as an aside, I think it really makes colonialism seem like it was nothing when it was something extremely horrific for many people. But neocolonialism, the accusations of neocolonialism come from the lack of information to African publics about what is going to happen with this huge partner, with this huge, huge country that people don't really know. And they don't know China very well because of obviously there's language barriers and so on. So how to, how to address that is really up to African leaders in particular to try to articulate what they want to get out of the relationship and, and take that forward. And that needs to be in, on so many levels from investment to trade to tourism, a whole set of things. And, and we strongly advise and work with African governments to try to formulate those strategies and we advise them to make those strategies public too. From the Chinese side as well, there's also something that China can do about this challenge and these accusations. In my opinion, it's not to do with, the answer is not to be defensive and the answer is not to also suppress information about what's happening. The answer is more to actually build understanding of African countries in Chinese organizations, much more deeper understanding. The Sierra Leone example is a really good one, not from the African side, because yeah, okay, it's Sierra Leone saying no to something. Yeah, other countries have said no, Malaysia, Sri Lanka. But what it illustrates to me is more that Chinese organizations don't necessarily understand the politics that are happening on the African continent, and every African country has a very, very different political situation. So Sierra Leone, this project has been a, an idea, a plan for many, many years, but different parties have supported it and others have not. So finally, it's come to the stage where it's not necessarily supported by the current government. So Chinese organizations need to work more, not just to reach out to top levels of government, but also build local partnerships that will actually work, that will create much more of a momentum for those projects to go ahead as joint ventures, for example, and really just fully understand what they're in, who they're working with and prioritize that as opposed to just the top level of government, which is what they tend to do. What sentiments towards China have you seen in Kenya and other African countries? 
Yeah, so two, in 2015, there was a survey by Afrobarometer which showed that China was getting a really positive reception in lots of African countries and uh, seen not just as a model for development, but also just being helpful. I think since then, unfortunately, and we don't have the survey results, I hope Afrobarometer will bring something out again soon, I think, especially in Kenya, things have really deteriorated. But I think, again, it comes back to not having a handle on the relationship. So in Kenya, we don't have a lot of natural resources. Uh, we have a lot of tourism and so on. But the Kenyan trade deficit with China is 60 to 1. So for every 60 US dollars that Kenya imports from China, Kenya exports just $1 to China. That's crazy. And so really the government has not fully managed that relationship and needs to get more of a handle on it. And it's trying to work on bringing Kenyan tea into China and so on. That's one of our forthcoming projects. Other countries also need to try to do the same. And I think it's those sorts of big picture issues that then colour what your everyday person is feeling and seeing and perceiving China. Right now, it's a very mixed picture. Some countries, Kenya, Zambia, and a few others, where you see that the relationship is just not great. The public also perceive it that way. In others, Ethiopia, Rwanda, they're seeing China as an opportunity and ready to try and, and make the most of that. Actually, the government is also putting money into, into making the most of that and making quite strong demands of Chinese partners. If you were to recommend to our listeners some kind of materials, if someone wants to learn more, understand Africa better, where to start? Let me give you some broad ones first. Essential reading about the China-Africa relationship in particular, go to read Deborah Broutingham, The Dragon's Gift, and also read Howard French. It's called China's Second Continent. It's, those two books are really essential reading. Then, obviously, there are some more um, uh, specialist products and specialist information. So, for example, right now we've been working with the UN agency, UN agency for HIV and AIDS here in China to produce a profile of 21 African countries, what their health markets look like. And we're producing that in English and Chinese. And it's meant to be a kind of entry point for Chinese companies in particular, but also others, to say okay, what country might be a good place to invest and where are the biggest opportunities in terms of the health markets if we're going to start manufacturing products in Africa, which is one thing you know, most uh, UN organisations are now fully united around. Uh, so there, there are lots of specialist products. I would just suggest just keep in touch with what Development Reimagined is doing too. <laughs> Because we're really trying to do as much as we can in this space and, and trying to put as much, much information out there about, about the situation with regards to China in particular and Africa. If we don't seize the opportunity now to improve that relationship and make it deliver, you know, China is a hugely important partner for Africa. So if African countries can't leverage that relationship, then there's going to be a problem going forwards and, and those... Over 300 million people in poverty in sub-Saharan Africa are going to remain there. And that's not what we want to see. So that's why we do what we do. And that's it for today. Hannah, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts about Belt and Road in Africa with us. Thank you so much for having me.
That's this week's Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.